This week on It Starts With Attraction. Did you know that 771 million people around the world do not have access to clean water? If you're listening to this podcast, then you and I are in a position where we can access water. We can access clean water and we are blessed because of it. But there is such an impact that dirty water is having all around the globe. And guess what? It is a solvable problem. And today I'm interviewing Scott Harrison, who is the CEO founder of Charity Water. You've probably heard of Charity Water. They're doing amazing things. They've been around for 16 years. They build wells and many other types of ways of bringing clean water to the places who don't have it all around the world. And today I not only ask him how he got started with Charity Water, what led to him even creating this nonprofit that's having a major impact around the world, but also what is it that Charity Water really does? What does it look like and how does it have an impact in the lives of the people where a new well that gives them access to clean water, when that's put in their community, what does that do for them? And the results, what you hear will probably shock you. I was unaware of just how big of a problem unclean water is around the globe and how it impacts people just like me that just happen to be born in a different place. This episode, listen all the way through because I'm going to challenge all of us as listeners to band together and support Charity Water. Be sure that you stick around until the end of the episode because I'm going to challenge all of us as listeners to do everything we can to support Charity Water. Be sure that you stick around until the end of the episode because I'm going to be talking about how you and I can work together to start seeing more clean water become available all around the world. This is really important to me, that this podcast platform becomes a tool that I can use, that you can use to help raise money for amazing causes that are happening. A lot of other podcasts and shows do sponsorships where people pay them in order to be sponsored. And all of that is great. I understand that. But as I've been thinking and praying over the past year of what to do with this podcast, it became very clear to me this past week that this podcast needs to be used to raise money to give away. That's what we're going to do. And the focus for this podcast is Charity Water. I'm excited to give. I'm excited for you to listen to this conversation with CEO Scott Harrison. Let's dive in. There's a process to falling in love, and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction, and it starts now. So Scott, how was it that you decided to start Charity Water? Where did this even come from? Well, it was definitely not a traditional path into, uh, gosh, I guess social entrepreneurship is what you'd call it today, but that, that turn didn't even exist um, years ago. I was a, a nightclub promoter for 10 years. So I had moved to New York City to rebel against a very conservative Christian upbringing. Uh, my mom was an invalid when I was growing up. I was an only child, so mm-hmm. had a you know a strange childhood and a caregiver role, and uh, just walked away from you know anything related to church or morality or rules when I was eighteen, and spent the next decade filling forty top New York City clubs 
uh, with people and selling thousand dollar bottles of champagne and twenty five dollar cocktails. So that was kind of my first career, and I was really good at it. But Mm -hmm. along with that comes every uh, dark, despicable vice you might imagine. You know, when you go to a club at twelve and come home at noon the next day, good things don't happen. Yeah. So I picked up a two pack a day smoking habit, a drinking problem, a drug problem, a gambling problem, a pornography problem. I mean, you name you name the vice, <clears throat> and it was a part of my life. Mm. And at twenty eight years old, I you know woke up one day. I started having some health issues. Maybe <laughs> maybe no surprise because of the lifestyle. Yeah. And just realized, man, I'm emotionally bankrupt. I'm morally bankrupt. I'm a terrible person. Uh, this needs to change. You know, I, I can't continue living like this. And I really missed that foundation of, you know, wholesome spirituality, like foundational, uh, the, the stuff that I'd been brought up with, you know, started to look a lot better 10 years in, you know, having explored the, the depravity and hedonism. Um, Mm. so I got this idea to tithe one of the 10 years that I'd selfishly wasted filling up clubs and see if I could be useful, uh, on some sort of humanitarian mission. You know, did I have anything to offer the world or others? And the first 10 organizations I applied to all denied me. Uh, it turned out world vision was not looking for a nightclub promoter to join uh, world vision, nor was doctors without borders or Samaritan's Mm -hmm. purse or the red cross. But I was very fortunate. One organization eventually accepted me uh, as a volunteer photojournalist. I was a pretty good writer as a hobby, pretty good photographer as a hobby. And I had to pay them $500 a month to go to the poorest country in the world at the time, which was Liberia, having mm. just completed a 14-year civil war. So in, in some ways, you know, this was the exact opposite of my life poorest country in the world, go broke by serving. And I joined a group of Christian doctors and nurses. And, you know, long story short, the year turned into two years there. And of all of the problems I saw in a country with no electricity and no running water and no sewage system and no mail system, uh, in a country where there was one doctor for every 50,000 people living there, the one thing I saw that just was the most compelling for me was that people were drinking dirty water. And I learned half the country was drinking from swamps and rivers and ponds. And half the disease in the country was because people were drinking dirty water. And here I was with doctors trying to make people healthy. And yet 50% of the people living in the country didn't have the most basic need for health or life, you could argue, met. And after two years there, I came back to New York City as a 30-year-old with my issue. I said, I am going to try to make an impact in the world by getting the, you know, then it was a billion people on the planet access to, to clean water. That was 16 years ago. Wow. I want to ask you a little bit more. So going back to sure. the 10 years that you stepped away from how you'd been grown up, your faith. Yep. Did So was there a moment at that end of that 10 years, kind of the quote unquote day you woke up where you would come back to your faith? And what did that look like? Not until the end of the 10 years. 
So it was really, uh, you know, for the 10 years I wasn't going to church, I wasn't giving, um, I, I wasn't living any of it. I wasn't praying. I mean, there was no spiritual life at all. And mm-hmm. in this kind of, you know, few month period where I had, it, what happened was I woke up one day and half my body went numb and I thought that I had a brain tumor or Parkinson's disease or something terribly wrong with, with me. And I said, well, what if I was going to die like in a few weeks or in a few months? You know, what would my life have meant? And the answer was nothing. <laughs> my tombstone, you know, might read, here lies a club promoter who got a million people drunk. And that's the only thing that I'd done. So that started the journey back uh, to exploring churches, to reading the Bible again, to praying. You know, my dad sent me a book uh, called The Pursuit of God by, you know, a theologian named Tozer. I mean, like I was reading kind of, you know, deep theology while doing cocaine at night. I mean, this was definitely a push-pull for wow. a period of months. And, you know, I just, I realized how much I missed that faith, the the belief, and uh, maybe the life of virtue seemed a lot more enticing when you'd lived a, a life of vice or mm-hmm. of, of, of decadence. And, you know, I remember reading the Bible again as a 28 year old and like Jesus was a lot more badass than I remember. You know, he was not religious. He was kind of, you know, thumbing his nose to the religious establishment of the day. You know, all the people who insisted and enforced all of these rules. So maybe the the God that I experienced in the text at 28 was very different than the one that had been fed to me, you know, through a conservative Baptist or Assemblies of God. Uh, we went to so many different churches, but it was it was much more rules based. It was much more here are all the things that you cannot do. And mm-hmm. I think uh, I found a much more expansive faith and, you know, and, and I wound up not starting a religious organization. So Charity Water, you know, is, is not a faith-based organization, but for the last 16 years now, I've been able to live out my faith in the workplace or live out my faith yeah. through this calling of getting people clean water um, and, you know, letting it animate and drive me and the decisions and the culture I'm trying to create and the, the values by with which we, we treat people. Um, but again, you know, there's no strings kind of attached to that. Right. I mean, that sure. Can be- yeah. And it's not lost on me how, you know, you said you were thinking about what would my tombstone read? Here's, here's Scott who got a million people drunk to the way your story has turned out now to where it's still liquid, right? Like there's still a drink that's, that's in this, but now it's water and it's life giving and it's not life taking for such, you know, so much of what that nightclub life lifestyle is like. How, I mean, a little bit more talk about, you were doing drugs, you were, you know, pornography, all those things. How did you switch your lifestyle? Was it going to Liberia where you no longer had access? Like how did you stop some of those habits and addictions? So I'm an Enneagram 8, so I'm very extreme. Um, yeah. I'm very black and white. And um, I w- the mission I was joining was a hospital ship. So imagine an ocean liner, a 522-foot ocean liner that has been oh, wow. gutted and mm-hmm. you know equipped with state-of-the-art operating rooms and you know a hospital ward. And there was something, you know, symbolic or or prophetic about walking up the gangway of a ship knowing that gangway would be brought up and then sailing away to a continent I'd never been to, Africa, and to a new life. Mm 
So if I'm honest, I got fantastically drunk the night before I joined the mission. I smoked 60 cigarettes, uh, just knowing, you know, I'm going to go out with a bang. So later, you know, people said, oh, this, this new volunteer from New York City, he turns up dressed in black, you know, he stinks of alcohol and cigarettes, (laughs) you know, uh, who is this guy? Um, but, but, you know, for me, it was a clean break. You know, I, I never touched Coke or any of that stuff again. I never looked at a pornographic Mm. image again. I never gambled again. Um, never had another cigarette again. Um, I like wine and craft IPAs. So that's, I don't know that it's a vice anymore, but you know, I, um, I really just said, you know, I'm never going to do this stuff again. And it was a clean break. And also, you know, when you're with Christian doctors, like it's not really cool to smoke. You know, sure. nobody's nobody's down in the ward uh, sniffing lines of cocaine on a Christian hospital ship. No. So I think the culture really changed. Available. And that yeah. that's really important. You know, I didn't realize how important that was at the time. But the, in, the entire intention of this new community that I joined was to work out their Christian faith through service, you know, mm-hmm. to use their time, their talent and their money in the service of others. The previous community I'd been, you know, was let's get laid, let's get drunk, you know, let's get messed up and live as much life for ourselves as we can. Let's accumulate as much money or as many cars or, you know, as many fabulous vacations as we can. So I don't know that I would have been able to have a clean break in my old community. Yeah, I don't Mm -hmm. think I was going to be the one guy who's, you know, standing in the DJ booth at a nightclub where I've invited a thousand people and I'm the sober guy. I, I don't know, but it was very easy to, yeah. much easier to do that in a hospital ship. So when you, two, two years, you, you do that. When you come back, do you go back to New York city? Where did you land when you got back to the States? I do. And I went straight back to the clubs cause those were the only people that I knew. And I remember mm-hmm. in those early days, I'd be up in a DJ booth with my laptop open, showing them people dying of bad water showing wow. my pictures and and some of the stories that I've written. And yeah, I remember a couple of DJs are like, bro, you're killing my buzz. Like, you got to get out of here. How much money do I have to give right now to get you out of my booth? <laughs> and awesome. you know, I'm joking, but I had a lot of those experiences, but I was just sharing my lived experience and mm-hmm. the world that I had seen with everybody I knew from my former life. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, Charity Waters raised a lot of money now and, and we've we've grown a, a pretty big organization. And people say, well, it's because you're like, I can't do that because I'm not a nightclub promoter. And, you know, I don't know all these people. None of those people gave. Uh, they, they were interested, but our big donors did not come from nightlife. Um, the people who are going to get messed up every night and spray champagne, you know, are not the people typically who are giving to humanitarian causes globally. So it was, you know, I would find a couple rays of hope, a couple bright spots, a business person here, you know, who would make another intro, but almost all of the early support for Charity Water came from outside of nightlife, not from, you know, the the people who used to come to the clubs and spend lots of money on, on drinking. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I, I heard you say in an interview you did that one of the ways you started charity water 
when you were thinking about it was what are the obstacles that that keep people from giving? And a lot of people don't want to give because it's going to go to overhead or personnel cost. And, you know, I, I have a nonprofit background as well. So I understand it takes money to run an organization, but you set it up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But you have set it up to where a hundred percent of donor funds go to building the wells and then you have and then you have different donors that really fund the overhead of the organization. So some questions I have about that are, number one, I mean, it's it can be easy to look as an outsider now at Charity Water and say, man, overnight sensation, right? Like they they are, have so much impact. They've always been this big. You know, Scott, Scott Harrison must have the Midas touch. Um, Tell us what it's really been like. I mean, over the past 16 years of growing Charity Water, was it just a phenomenon from the start or have there been times where you've thought, I don't know how to make this work, but I'm so driven by the mission, I've got to figure it out? Yeah, I wrote a book about this. I mean, there were moments of near death for the organization where we almost went bankrupt, insolvent because of that 100% model. Um, Mm -hmm. There were moments of wanting to give up. I mean, there was a lawsuit early on, which I wrote about in the book where you know, somebody sued us and basically said, we want you to stop existing as an organization. So certainly it wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't up and to the right with no resistance. Um, I will say we had, we had a lot of things going for us and we had some good timing. So that hundred percent model, you know, you mentioned turned out kind of to be lightning in a bottle. Uh, 42% of Americans don't trust charities. More recently, 70% of Americans polled by uh, a major university, 70% of people believe charities waste their money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the one way to kind of take the most common objection off the table is to promise people that 100%, if they give $1 or a million dollars, will go directly to the, the cause, in our case, the direct building of new water projects that save people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we actually opened up two separately audited bank accounts. So even today, you know, KPMG for the last decade comes in and writes an opinion on the 100% model. And to do it, we need about 100 families paying all the overhead. And these are high net worth mm-hmm. families. And all their money goes to staff salaries and flights mm-hmm. and office rent and the toner for the Epson copy machines and insurance and phone yeah. bills, like, you know, the, the nastiest overhead costs exactly. so that then for, therefore millions of donors can give in the purest way. That turned out to be really what people wanted. And I don't think we were sure at the time. And it turned out to be so unique and so rare because most of the time you give money to a charity and they send you a receipt and a thank you. And then they ask you for more money. Mm-hmm. You don't really know where the money went. You don't really know the impact. So that was really helpful. The second thing was, you know, social media was just happening. I mean, this dates me. I've been at this for 16 years. Okay. Uh, there was no Google Maps when I started. Okay. There was no Google Earth. Yeah. So I remember inviting myself to speak at Twitter headquarters and the company had 40 employees. Oh, wow. 40. Like Twitter was just a new idea. So, you know, we were early. We were the first charity to use Instagram when Instagram was started by Kevin Seister. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, we built a following really early on 
in the, you know, the age or the growth of social media and clean water is an issue, uh, which I'd argue is one of the very few things that everyone can agree is a good idea. Republicans think this is a great idea and Democrats think this is a great idea and independents and libertarians, um, Mm. people of deep religious faith think this is a great idea and atheists think this is a great idea. So we had a lot going for us. We had a compelling issue, clean water for humans, a transparent model, 100% of whatever anybody gives goes directly to clean water for humans. And then the third thing was really just this tech-focused thinking where, you know, we, we just, when we saw Google Maps, we said, wow, Google has just created a place where we can put satellite images of every single water project we're ever going to build and show them to the public. So the tools uh, became available to build the most transparent charity in the history of the world, which was one of our goals, was to connect donors to their impact through a variety of tools. So I think a lot of it I attribute to timing. Now, you could argue today, if you're starting a charity, you have certainly more tools at your disposal um, for payments and you know, email marketing or um, transparency than we did back then. But it it was really putting a lot of these things together and then working really hard. I mean, it was 100 hour weeks for five years. We all worked 100 hours a week. I know that's not trendy anymore, Um, but there was no live work balance at the beginning. You know, it's a startup. You are just trying to make sure you don't die, like that the company doesn't die. The organization doesn't completely run out of money and go insolvent before you've had a chance to achieve any sort of critical mass. So it was, I mean, I remember leaving the office at two in the morning and coming back at eight in the morning and doing that on a Saturday and doing that on a Sunday for, for a long time. And of course now 16 years in, you know, the rhythm is completely different. I mean, I've got young kids and um, you know, it's <laughs> no one at the organization should be working, you know, 60 hour weeks. Um, that's just not the yeah. culture today, but in those early days, it was an extraordinary amount of effort required. How long commitment. have you been married? I have been married 12 years uh, and I married my second employee. So my wife, Victoria, <laughs> um, later became a co-founder of the org, but she was the creative director and really helped build the Charity Water brand. Um, interestingly, now she teaches nonprofits how to fundraise and market and tell better stories and, um, you know, she's working with kind of nonprofits in the, you know, call it million to $10 million annual budget range, trying to help them scale and get more critical mass through some of the things that, that she's learned. That's awesome. That's fantastic. So you were driven together with the passion for Charity Water and what it would do. We, we, we combined our, uh, what, 100-hour weeks. <laughs> I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but sometimes we count it and we're like, well, I think we did 100 hours this week. But we loved it. You know, it's a, it's a passion. Um, yeah. You are, you know, you're birthing something. You're creating, you know, Charity Water didn't exist in the world. Millions of donors had never given to clean drinking water. So you're mm-hmm. also energized by the winds, you're energized by the water projects that are springing up all over the world by the people that are getting clean water. You know, I've been to 72 countries now. I've been to Africa more than 55 times. When I'm in a community that didn't have clean water and then I go back six months later and I see the transformation, yeah, that keeps you going. That provides a huge amount of energy. I mean, I've had these moments where, 
you know, last year we helped 2 million people get clean water. Um, I've had moments where I've been in a village and said it would have been all worth it for these couple hundred people. Mm-hmm. You know, all the work would have been worth it. And then you're like, well, but it wasn't 200 people. It was actually 200, you know, 2 million people that got the, the benefit of that. Mm. What was it like? So talk me through, you start Charity Water. Where was the first well? How did you choose where it was going to be? What is, and, and do you still do it that way? Do you build a well or are you also <laughs> moving some of the like life straw type stuff? Yeah. For very, very and- different today than the era. The first day of Charity Water was a party in a nightclub and I was turning <laughs> 31 years old and I threw myself a 31st birthday party. I got the club donated. Um, I got open bar donated for one hour and I invited everybody I knew to come and they had to donate $20 to get in the door of the club. And at the end of the night, we collected $15,000 in cash and we built our first well in Northern Uganda. And I actually did it with a guy named Bob Goff, who I'm sure some people know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. who had an organization up there named Restore. And I'd met him and he said, I know a well driller. I know a place where a a refugee camp that really needs clean water. And I said, great, well, I have $15,000. And we wound up drilling a couple wells there and then... Uh, sending out a photographer to photograph the wells and then sending the satellite images and the photographs of the wells and actually video of clean water flowing back to the 700 people who came to the party. And we said, you gave $20, 100% of your $20 wound up here and people's lives are transformed because you went to a club and gave $20. Let's do that again. Hmm. And that was day one of Charity Water. And we've tried to do a version of that formula, inviting people to contribute to a solvable problem and then showing them stories of impact. We've tried to do that, you know, for, for 16 years now today, gosh, there's a, uh, there's a programs team there, you know, almost 30 people who are water experts and hydrogeologists and auditors. And we fund 14 different technologies. So a well would be one of 14 different solutions. And the solutions wow. now range from a $65 bio sand filter in Cambodia to a $1.8 million solar system uh, connecting 19 villages in Rwanda, um, and then everything in between. So we're, we're completely agnostic when it comes to the solution, and we now have kind of 14 different tools that we can use across 29 different countries. How many people are on your team now? We're about 110 in the States and then about 2,000 locals working through the partners. Um, so they're on our payroll, but indirectly through about 50 local partner organizations. Really cool. How much do you understand all of the 14 different technologies that could be used? I mean, pretty well now, uh, just because yeah. I've been in the field so much. Um, travel and taking major donors and spending time with our partners has just been such a big part of my life over over 16 years. So, yeah, I could probably geek out on uh, maybe it might surprise people. Were they your ideas? No, no, no. I mean, I just hired a bunch of water experts to, you know, I, I hired an amazing um, leader uh, who's been with me now for over 10 years, you know, who really built a uh, a world-class water programs department um, mm. and then a world-class portfolio of 50 local partners now across 29 countries. So maybe this, maybe this comes into the partner thing, but one of the questions I wanted to ask 
I remember back, you know, years ago when I was in college, I went to India and we built a sustainable water irrigation system for, mm-hmm. pl- for being able to plant gardens at an orphanage. And, um, and one of the things we did not do well was ensure that they could keep up with it and that it would continue to be life-giving for them for five years, a decade. So when sure. it comes to the, you know, how, any of these 14 different technologies, how do you make sure that when this new thing is brought into a community, that the community knows how to take care of it, how yeah. to keep it sustainable for long periods of time, all of those things? I'm glad you asked. That is a multi, multi-million dollar um, strategy and, mm-hmm. you know, division now of Charity Water, uh, which mm-hmm. is really the ongoing maintenance and repairs of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think where to even start on this. Let's talk about a well. 25% of the wells in Africa are broken right now. The problem is wow. nobody knows which 25%. Because when a government or an NGO goes out and builds a well, um, at best, they take a picture of the well, they train the local community in the ongoing maintenance of that project, and then they send the donor a pretty picture for the refrigerator. Yeah. That works 75% of the time. 25% of the time, which is not, I mean, it's not terrible, right? (laughs) um, It's it's not 10% of the time, right? Um, Yeah. But what happens is sometimes a major repair is needed or sometimes uh, the head of the water committee dies, who was the the woman who was the treasurer, who was responsible for collecting money from every user of that well and putting that into a maintenance account, kind of saving for the future. Um, In one village, the village chief's son was about to die of malaria and the water committee took every single penny they had in the water fund. And they paid to save the chief's son's life through treatment. And then the well broke. Mm. So, you know, imagine every possible scenario throughout uh, a fragile environment like rural Ethiopia or Malawi or Bangladesh, where things could go wrong. So what we've tried to do um, is uh, develop technology to create smart wells. So in the same way that if you're familiar with Nest, you can um, monitor the temperature of a home from across an ocean and you know, turn your heat up or turn your heat down, we are creating smart wells. So we now have 8,000 wells that are connected to the cloud that self-report exactly how much water is flowing every single day. And when a well breaks, we then have created almost like Apple Care for wells or Best Buy's Geek Squad, where mechanics go out, make service calls, uh, and then they're paid f- by the local committee. Um, but if the committee didn't have money, like in the case of the malaria, we would backstop that just to make sure that the well is fixed and the clean water continues to flow. So we've invested um, over $11 million now of R&D. This was funded by Google and complete outside technology partners um, for this hardware. And this is something we're really trying to scale. It's all open source as well. So the government of Ghana just ran a test using our technology on Ghanaian government wells. And Charity Water's never worked in Ghana. So we don't even have a footprint of funding or infrastructure there. Um, And that's really exciting for us, that this technology that we've developed over the last eight years could be useful for the whole sector. Um, A well is like a car. Um, You're going to need an oil change. Your brake pads are going to wear at some point. And you're going to need new tires. If you 
are counting the cost of that upcoming maintenance for your car, you're fine, right? And then maybe there's a catalytic converter, right? You have small maintenance things, $50 oil change, no big deal. Um, and then you have big maintenance things. So a well is just like that. If you take care of a car, my wife's uh, grandparents drive a 1998 Lexus. I mean, this car, you could probably sell it for $75. It has 330,000 miles on this thing. Wow. It is 24 years old. And I drove it the other day and it's still, you know, and now grandpa took care of the car. He talks to the car. He washes the car by hand. He took care of this asset for a quarter of a century and 330,000 miles later, it's still benefiting, you know, these, these 80 year old, uh, this 80 year old couple. Um, now there's also uh, a well could be like a, maybe a Ford Mustang in Las Vegas over spring break <laughs> treated very differently and probably a very different life expectancy on it. So charity water is in the maintenance business now, and we're investing millions and millions of dollars to make sure that the infrastructure we build continues to benefit people over time. Yeah. And how many people is it now that still are lacking access to clean water? We've made progress. So when I started, it was a billion worldwide or one in six. Population has grown. And still, we've taken the number down now to 770 million. So it's one in 10 people alive. Depending on how you look at that, you could say, that's insane. Two Americas full of people right now are drinking disgusting water that could kill them and their children. Um, and, And yet, you know, Elon is landing rockets in the middle of an ocean on moving platforms, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. it, AI and, and uh, machine learning is like come so far, but yet we can't get 700 million people clean water. Um, but we've also made progress. And I, I think what's really important for people to know now is 82% of the people on earth without water now live in rural communities. Most of the progress has been made in the densely populated urban and peri-urban environments. So this is now much more last mile stuff. It gets harder to get the 771 down to zero, but it's solvable. There's not a single person alive right now. We don't know how to help. And that's why I'm you know, 16 years into this. I'm still so energized because we can solve this problem in its totality. My mom died of pancreatic cancer. The doctors had absolutely no idea what to do with stage four pancreatic cancer. They basically just said, you're just going to die, you know, Mm -hmm. and we could do some chemo, but it's not going to work. There are so many diseases that are incurable or we're looking for that solution, maybe in a lab, maybe in a test tube, maybe it's 30 years from now. Water is not like that. We have the solution. We have many solutions. Um, We could help every single human being right now who's drinking dirty water. We could help them drink clean water. We don't have the money to do it. We haven't created the will, the global will to do it. Um, but we know how to do it. Hmm. So it's our job to get more people inspired and engaged in this issue. Because when you do water, you're also impacting health. You're also hmm. impacting women and girls. You know, I, in the 70 countries I've been to, I've never seen men get water. 100% hmm. of the time, it's the women and the girls who are breaking their backs, you know, wasting 40 billion hours just in Africa walking for water. It impacts education. Half of the schools throughout the developing world, don't have clean water for their students. I'm sure there's parents listening. Imagine sending your kid to a school with no water and no toilets. Imagine your teenage girl when she starts to menstruate, staying home five days 
every single month because she's not going to go to a school with no water and no toilets. And then she's now behind in her schoolwork. Yeah. And the social pressure says, well, you probably shouldn't get educated anyway. You're a girl. Just go walk for water or go collect mm-hmm. firewood. So, you know, water sits at the core of so many other systemic problems facing society. And, you know, in some ways it's like a seven in one issue. You know, you tackle food security and gender equality and health and livelihoods and, uh, and education, you know, just by, and just by providing the most basic thing. So I'm, I'm, as you could tell, I'm still excited about water 16 years later. As you should be. My, both of my kids are from India. And when we brought them home a couple of years ago, my son was two at the time. He was the youngest of the two. Uh, my son was two. My daughter was four and a half at the time we brought them home. And he had Giardia from yeah, yep. who knows how disease, long sure. a waterborne disease. And, you know, he's this little two-year-old who's already malnourished, already hasn't been held as much as he needed to be, if at all. And on top of this, he ha- he's fighting this in his stomach and, yep. uh, you know, added to more now mal- malnourishment for him. And so thankfully, you know, here we're able to get him clean water. We're able to get him the medicine he needs, but it just shakes me at my core to think of how many kids don't have, sure. don't have that. Sure. And it's, as you're saying, because of water. So for this, for me, it's personally, cause I just remember that little, yep. that little boy, our two-year-old son who's so helpless in it, but what can we do to help him? Sure. And so you and I were talking a little bit before we started the, the podcast and let's talk about what it looks like to to help, to actually see change happen in the world, to see people, children, babies have clean water. How can we partner with you? How can my listeners partner with you to help that happen even more? Yeah. Uh, This sounds surprising, but it only costs about $40 to help somebody get clean water. Amazing. Um, And, and, you know, think of that as a 10 year solution for the life of the project. Um, And, and some of these projects can last far longer. Uh, so, you know, look, charity water has a lot of ways that people can engage. Um, it helps, it costs about $10,000 to help a whole community. So there's some people, some families at the end of the year, you know, they will write a check for an entire community to get clean water. Um, we have kids out there selling lemonade and sending in $8 and 16 cents, knowing that $8 and 16 cents will go directly to help people get clean water. Uh, and they helped, you know, almost a person, right? Um, we have this amazing community called The Spring that now spans, uh, we have members in 149 countries. And this is just like Netflix or Spotify for clean water. Uh, people who show up every month and they give 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks a month, whatever they can afford. And instead of getting music or TV or movies, 100% of what they give goes and helps people get clean water. And we built a really cool system where you can track uh, your impact over time. Uh, people can invite their friends and then track the impact of their friends or their network um, on the spring. And, you know, I was telling you before we started, that actually helped us triple the organization. So it wasn't the big million dollar donations that mm-hmm. helped us make the greatest impact. It was a bunch of people showing up at 20, 30, 40 bucks a month because yeah. a lot of people can do that. I mean, yeah. Netflix has almost 200 million people paying every single month for mu- music or for movies and TV. You know, you'd think we should be able to get a million people excited about clean water or 10 million people. You know, I'd argue there are 200 million people that could 
stand for you know their brothers and sisters around the world getting access to the most basic thing needed to live on this planet, to thrive, to be human uh, as clean water. So, um, yeah, I think we, we we can set up uh, just a, a link where people could go if if your community wanted to learn more. Um, just charitywater.org slash pies, P-I-E-S. And you could learn more about the different ways to get involved. And there's some videos. Uh, there's a video as well on that page kind of of the charity water story. I think it's gotten over a hundred million views now across mm-hmm. platforms. And um, even if somebody has no money to give, you could share that. Uh, you could share the story with, with others. Mm-hmm. Scott, I would love to ask if you could just help us understand a little bit more I mean, you've said, you know, women are the ones having to walk. It can change their yeah. education when they when water is more accessible to them. But what have you actually seen that Charity Water has been able to do that you can share with our listeners to help them just visualize this is the impact that yeah. clean water has on a person and a society? Well, I'll tell you two stories. The first one, buckle up, because it's, uh, it's, it's kind of shocking. Um, I was in Ethiopia... This is a few years ago. Um, I've been there 31 times now. So this is a country where we've, we've worked extensively. And I was in a $5 a night hotel room. And I came out and I was sitting in the, the cafe. And the owner recognized me because Charity Water has a big footprint in the area and sits down and says, you're the water guy. You know, I come from a rural village, you know, hours from here. But let me tell you a story. And he said, well, growing up in my village, there was a woman. And in fact, all the women used to walk eight hours for water. Now, you know, eight hours sounds like a cliche, right? It just sounds like hyperbole until you actually walk eight hours with a woman. And it's wow. four hours out and four hours back. Or really, sometimes it's three hours out with the empty can and five hours back because it's a lot slower hauling 40 pounds of water. Yeah. So he said, you know, one day uh, there was this woman in my village and, you know, she does her eight hour walk. And before she gets home, he said she slips and she falls and she spills her water. And she breaks her clay pot into pieces. And he said she was in such despair that she hung herself from the nearby tree. She took the rope that she used to use to fasten the clay pot to her shoulders and she tied it around her neck. She climbed the tree and she jumped. He said the village elders found her body swinging from a tree with the clay pot next to her. And, you know, I remember thinking at first, that's not true either. You know, people don't hang themselves from trees because they spill water. But that really gnawed at me. And I went to actually live in that village for a week and meet her mother and meet her friends and her family and visit her burial site um, to walk in her footsteps those eight hours to see the water that wasn't even clean. I mean, it came from yeah. a nasty source that you wouldn't let a dog drink from, let alone a, a human. And at the very end of that trip, they took me to uh, the tree. And it was a very small tree. And what I didn't know until I had you know, gone all the way there to this village was that she was a 13-year-old girl. Um, I'd, I'd imagined a woman at the end of her life, tired yeah. of walking and um, a very different suicide than a child suicide, than a teen mm-hmm. suicide. And I remember being with her best friend and I said, well, why do you think she did it? You know, why not go back for, for more water? And her friend said, shame which was translated through Ethiopian to English. And she said, you know, she was such a responsible girl that she would have had such shame that she'd let her family down through her carelessness of slipping and falling. Because not only 
Was she coming home after eight hours empty-handed with no water? She'd also broken the clay pot, which was a valuable asset to the family. And that would have just been too much for her to, to bear, to face them. Mm. So, you know, look, I'm, I'm sure uh, no one listening thinks 13-year-old girls should be swinging from trees because they spilled their water uh, that was eight hours away and dirty because that just happens to be where they were born. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't choose to be born in Philadelphia into a middle-class environment um, any more than Letikiros chose to be you know, born in Northern Ethiopia. Mm. So, I, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that's an isolated traumatic story, but I've, I've heard stories of children dragged off by crocodiles, getting water from rivers, uh, women raped on the way to get water, women attacked by hyenas and lions, because in so many of these communities, you're sharing the same source with the, the wildlife <laughs> and, and not like just the domestic wildlife, the wild wildlife. Yeah. Um, I'll end on a happier story. <laughs> uh, there's a woman we helped uh, early on named Helen Apio in Northern Uganda, actually not far from where our first well was. And we visited the village a bunch of times. And, you know, uh, on, on one of the times we said, you know, Helen, you used to walk such a far distance. You know, you've got clean water now. The well is right next to your house. You can take all the water you want. You know, how's your life different? Like, how has this really impacted you as a you know, 50-something-year-old woman? And she said, well, that's easy. I am beautiful now. And I remember our team was like, yeah, of course you're beautiful, Helen. Like, you're a beautiful Ugandan woman. She said, no, you don't understand. She said, I had a lot of kids. And the water was far. And I could only bring a limited quantity back for my family every day. And she said, as a Ugandan woman... I always put my family first. <coughs> Excuse me. She said, that's what we do. She said, I always gave the water to them and it was for their school uniforms to be washed. And it was for the kids to drink and for gardening and keeping the house clean. She said, I never used the water for myself. I always went last. And she said, now I can take all the water that I want. And she said, I can wash my face. I can wash my body and I can wash my clothes. And she said, now I'm beautiful. Look at me. She said, look at me, I'm looking so smart, right? And, you know, again, I mean, this thing that most of us take for granted, just think if you weren't clean, if you went through your life dirty, and you went through your life dirty so that other people in your family could be clean. Yeah. And then one day, you can be clean. You can have all the water you want for drinking. You don't have to make those trade-offs or sacrifices. That's right. We are so blessed. Anyone who's able to listen to this podcast is blessed and blessed enough to be able to do something, whether it's giving and partnering with Charity Water or not, doing something to just be aware of the people around us who are in need. And sometimes sometimes it's the people next door, but sometimes it's the people in Ethiopia or in Uganda or in India who need our help. So, Scott, thank you. I am going to be promoting and supporting Charity Water. Awesome. And of course, I'm going to be encouraging the listeners for us to band together and see how much of an impact we can make for clean water to happen all over the world. And all of the, how many countries are you, are you in now? 29, 29. 29 countries, which is fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your mission and drive to to start this 16 years ago and your faithfulness of seeing it through so far. Thanks for uh, having me on and, and letting me share.
I don't know about you, but when I think about the girl, that young girl that decided to end her own life simply because she couldn't get the water back to her house, to her family, and the shame that covered her in that. It chills me to my core. And I think about, even just personally, how I'm so thankful that that's not my daughter right now. But I also think, I mean, that's the selfish thought, because I also think that there's so many people's daughters that are out there whose lives are very different than yours and mine. I'll just speak for me. Their lives are very different from mine. And how blessed I am, like looking around at the things that I have, the water that I have, how much I waste water. Like I just go stand in a shower for 20, 30 minutes sometimes and just waste water. While there's all of these people who have, I mean, water is so sacred for them. It's what gives them life and they have to work so hard to get it. I have been personally convicted by, by this and the realization that around the world, there are people who are in need and I have the ability to help them for $10, for $20, $30 a month, or even just one time, it makes a difference. And there are people that you and I can't see who are in need. There's people you and I can see who are in need and we should, or I'll just speak for me, I should do more to help them. But also there are people who are my brothers and sisters, as Scott said, around the world, who I may never meet them or see them, but I've been called to love them in my personal community, in my country, but also in the world. As the Bible said, Jesus started in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It it should start local and go further. But partnering with Charity Water is such a great way to start having an impact. And it's easy. And I would love for us as a community of It Starts With Attraction listeners to band together and see how much of an impact we can make on delivering clean water to areas of the world that don't have it yet or continuing to provide clean water in that maintenance capacity in the areas of the world that have it and just need to continue to maintain it because the infrastructure isn't quite there to completely help it maintain without without further funding. This is important. It's so important. Join me in donating monthly or even just give a one-time donation. Let's see what we can do. This is part of our pies. This is how we work on our pies, physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, living in line with your beliefs and values, giving to others, doing something to go outside of yourself, sacrificing some of your time or your money to help make another person's life better. This is your opportunity. Join me in partnering with Charity Water for clean water to become accessible all around the world. You can click the link in the show notes to join and we'll see how much of an impact we can have together. Until next week, stay strong.